Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On today's podcast, we'll talk with a musician and treehouse maker for the rich and famous. He rubbed elbows with the rising stars of Seattle's grunge scene in the 80s and 90s. No one thought they were going to get a record deal, and then suddenly they were. Then we'll hear how a rapper fuses painting into his latest album called Bobby Ross. I've made the point, though, to not be the black Bob Ross. But first, I want to share a segment we like to call Cover Me. It's where KEXP producer Owen Murphy chats with KEXP DJ Troy Nelson about his favorite cover songs. The times are tough now, they're just getting tougher. The world is up and to cover me. Come on, Troy Nelson, come on, baby, cover me. hit the high note there. Yes, our famous theme song, or should I say infamous. Whoa. How you doing today, Owen? I'm doing fine, Troy. How are you? I am doing A-OK, and I always enjoy doing these uh, Cover Me installments with you, and I have brought another cover song to the table to discuss today. I could not be more excited. This is one of my top 3,000 favorite artists of all time, at least the original. <laughs> top th- maybe 5,000. All right, so today uh, the cover song that we are going to talk about is very local-centric because it is the uh, local artist Deep Sea Diver, and they covered Mariah Carey's Fantasy. Ooh. Yes, very interesting choice. And apparently Jessica Dobson of Deep Sea Diver uh, in an interview said that uh, she's loved Mariah Carey ever since she was a little kid, and her song Hero was the very first piano ballad that uh, Jessica Dobson learned how to play and performed it very proudly at recitals, and then fantasy came onto the scene, and that's what really mesmerized uh, Jessica Dobson of Deep Sea Diver was the song Fantasy. So the Mariah Carey version, which was on her fifth album, Daydream, which was released in 1995, and it was the uh, very first single for the album Daydream, and it was uh, co-written by uh, Carey and Dave Hall. But also, if you listen to the original version of Fantasy, really, it is the Tom Tom Club's Genius of Love, and uh, they sampled uh, the majority of that song. Really, it's just in the background, the entire track. In fact, in the middle of the song Fantasy, or towards the end, Mariah starts singing uh, lyrics from Genius of Love. So it's a really cool production choice. And of course, Genius of, of Love is an amazing track and has been used in many songs. But Fantasy, I mean, it was just a, it was a gigantic track. And uh, that Tom Tom Club song came out in 1981. All right. So we'll play uh, a little bit of the Tom Tom Club and then we'll go into Fantasy by Mariah Mar- Carey. And when we come back, we'll get to the uh, Jessica Dobson Deep Sea Diver version as well.
The song Fantasy Mariah Carey became the second song in Billboard history and the first by a female to debut atop the Billboard Hot 100. And additionally, aside from topping the Hot 100 chart for eight consecutive weeks, the song topped the charts in Australia, Canada, New Zealand. It was a top five hit in Belgium, in Finland, in France, in the United Kingdom. Fantasy was a gigantic tune, and I love the usage of the Tom Tom Club song. And uh, Mariah's voice, just uh, fantastic. I don't know how she hits those high notes. And if you listen to the beginning of the Deep Sea Diver version, Jessica Dobson is hitting those, like, you know, Mariah Carey can hit those bird notes, as I call them. It's like a bird singing. <laughs> Jessica Dobson does a fantastic job of that in the beginning of uh, their version, Deep Sea Diver's version of Fantasy. She might be the best guitar player in Seattle, and she's hitting those notes. Incredible. What an amazing artist we have right here in our hometown, Seattle. Let's listen to her version of this song. Yeah, just a wonderful take on that song, Fantasy. Once again, that's Deep Sea Diver covering Mariah Carey's Fantasy. And it was uh, released, uh, the Deep Sea Diver version was released in 2016, but it's been, they were kicking it around for a while. I saw footage of them performing it at Sasquatch in 2013, so I think that Deep Sea Diver's been uh, performing this for a while. Jessica Dobson stopped by the KEXP studios and performed it honoring International Women's Day, which was very cool. And it was uh, available on a limited edition cassette tape tape which uh, of their album Secrets and it was added to the cassette tape version of that which I really want now that I know that fact because it's not on the the vinyl version or the CD version but uh, there you go. All right well you've heard Fantasy from Mariah Carey the cover by Deep Sea Diver. How about the live in studio version recorded right here at KXP of Fantasy by Deep Sea Diver as we say goodbye Troy. I'm Owen Murphy. I'm Troy Nelson. This has been another edition of Cover Me here on Sound and Vision on KEXP. Vision. I'm John Richards. Roderick Wolgamott is a time capsule of Seattle music from the late 80s and 90s. While his band Sky Cries Mary might not be a household name, in Seattle, Sky Cries Mary were a very big deal, even featuring members of the Posies. Sky Cries Mary has also toured with Neil Young and opened for Green Day, Nine Inch Nails, and Bjork. Roderick is a story within himself. He's gone on to make elaborate tree houses for the rich and the famous. And we'll get to all of that in a little bit. But first, let's take you back to Roderick's early days when he was studying at the University of Washington. Roderick isn't an ordinary guy, and he created an unusual makeshift dorm at the UW in the mid-80s. Yeah, what happened was I was in the theater program, and I realized at the very top of Hutchinson Hall at the UW, there was a, a room that was locked, and I was like, what's in there? And so I got a saw, and I cut off the lock, 
took it off, and I went in, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in a palace. It's like 360 view of the campus. I was really in a castle. And so I figured out what I'd do is go by the exact same lock and put it on there that I'd have the key to. And then um, I'd get a, I got a ladder that would go up to the second floor. And I'd set that ladder up, and I'd already jacked the window open just a tiny bit so they wouldn't know. I'd go up on the ladder, I'd sneak in, I'd go back down, hide the ladder, lock the door, and then go up to my palace, you know. It was, like, amazing. <laughs> I mean, I had a I had a sleeping bag, I had a boom box, I had my journals. That was it. That's, like, three items. When did they catch you? <laughs> they had to have caught you. They did catch me. Uh, about six months later... Because um, there was a, a pool in the bottom of that, and there were showers, so I would go swim. I had a life, man. Yeah, I was you did. Like, <laughs> it was amazing. And then suddenly they caught me, and I didn't know, and they changed the lock back. Oh. So I'm like, you know, two in the morning going back to my little, you know, vampire lair. <laughs> Around the same time that Roderick was squatting at the top of Hutchinson Hall, he was also working at a French cafe in town with members of bands that would go on to define Seattle's grunge scene. And that's where I met Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam. Yeah. He was the guy who pulled the espresso. You know? Jeff was? Yeah, he was, he was the rock star. And then Andy Wood, Mother Love Bone. He was the dishwasher. That place was infamous. So that was the first time I saw, like, you know, sub-pop people coming in and meeting with Jeff and Stone and the gang, you know, and Mark Arm for Green River at the time. And uh, it was funny. We'd kind of argue in the morning because, you know, Jeff uh, meant one to hear, like, Aerosmith, and uh, Andy wanted to hear um, Elton John, and I wanted to hear Bauhaus, <laughs> <You know? laughs> In the end, the band that won was The Cult. The Cult was the thing that brought everybody together. We all agreed on that, so that was pretty much our soundtrack. By the late 80s, Roderick starts to release music of his own. He's logging hours at Seattle's Sub Pop Records, and he's rubbing elbows with those who had become the stars of Seattle grunge. I remember, like, trying to raise some bucks for, like, I think I made $5 an hour at Sub Pop stuffing singles for Bleach, you know? <laughs> Which is so funny because now Jack and Dino's in my band and is producing the new album. Jack and Dino is a producer who worked with Mudhoney, Soundgarden, and Nirvana. You know, and I remember Kurt coming over and uh, going, you know, thanks a lot, and he was so polite. And uh, he said, what's that? And it was my new vinyl for the first album. And I'm like, oh, it's my industrial record. He's like, cool. <laughs> There's been many interactions, but that one meant a lot to me. Cause, yeah, Kurt Cobain you know, gave you the... His first album, my first album, same time. You know, who would have known? Wow. So you are um, you're putting out your first record. You're stuffing bleach records for Sub Pop for $5 an hour. Kirk Cobain gives you the thumbs up on, on, that, uh, on that accomplishment. Um, you're around a lot of the people, these legends now, um, and the way you've always described them, I've heard you describe them, you always talk about their personalities and about their kindness or, or that side of, of them. 
and which I always like to hear. You know, mm. people hear all these stories about these Seattleites, these rock stars that came out of Seattle. You were actually you knew these guys. Like this, this was on a you know I work in the in the restaurant with one. I'm stuffing envelopes and Kurt's coming by. Like you were in it and you knew these guys. And looking back on that, did you know at the time like what a big deal Seattle was becoming and these people were becoming when you were around those those future rock stars? I didn't really know except that, you know, when I think Mother Love Bone got a huge deal, like a $500,000 deal, I was like, oh, my God, you know. And when I heard that, and then Soundgarden, I think, was the second one to get a big deal, and then Nirvana, you know. So suddenly these are huge deals, huge bands, insanely talented, you know. And then Andy passes away. And then, of course, Pearl Jam happened. And so, you know, the longevity of Pearl Jam, I think, is phenomenal. Like, if you look at it, I went and saw them, like, at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And I was like, every person in the audience knows every single word, you know. And they're as humble as they've ever been. Mm -hmm. You know, you go backstage and they're just like, that's how it was. And that's how it is. You know, that's really... uh, encouraging to me. And when you look back at the city then, such a different city, people wouldn't recognize a lot of the town that 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 was then. Can you describe that time compared to Maybe not go into what we are now, but can you just kind of like, what did it feel like then? Did it still feel isolated? And did it feel like the attention the world was suddenly being paid to Seattle? Yeah. I mean, I think there was like a microscope held to Seattle and not that it's completely moved on, but in a way it has. And Seattle was like, you know, you'd go to one show or another and you'd have your, you know, beer between your legs and go, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> like I remember a Green River uh, record release and I was, I think they had a marching band come through the middle of the show and I was just like, this is awesome, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, I think Mark Arm is probably one of the big highlights of the entire Seattle scene. I mean, Touch Me, I'm Sick is probably the theme song of the Seattle scene. You know, there's a lot of beer, there's a lot of coffee, and there's a lot of junk. That's kind of what created the mindset, you know, and for better or for worse, it just brought a lot to the the scene. And it's just like the bands were just, you know, no one really cared. No one thought they were going to get a record deal, and then suddenly they were, you know. I mean, that happened with Sky Cries Mary. It's like, you know, suddenly we get signed to a label set up by Dave Allen from Gang of Four. And I was a huge Gang of Four fan and then when he decided that Skycar's Mary was so important that was a big deal to me you know and then uh then we moved on to Capitol Records then we got dropped and then we moved on back into an indie and then we went to Warner Brothers and then we got dropped and, <laughs> and then we've just kind of stayed in the indie world and just made our own label and just put out our own music because we have to I can't imagine not doing music that would just not make sense to me in any way and then uh, a lot of people might not know this, though. Uh, November 17th, 1994, 
first internet concert takes place. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely, the first concert. What happened was Sky Cries was supposed to go to MIT on tour and do the first concert because they had such a wide bandwidth. And so then we heard the Rolling Stones were going to do it four days before us. Plus, old will be new again later this week when the Rolling Stones break new ground with the first ever live rock concert on the global computer internet. And so then we went back to Paul Allen and he had a company named Starwave at the time, and we we played in like a room that was like filled with conduit and steel and everything that was totally not finished. But he gave us the opportunity, and uh, that was it. I mean, it was hilarious. Like CNN's going crazy. The first band on the internet. You know, <laughs> can't even imagine that. It was it was really more significant than I thought about because I hadn't really put attention to the internet. I didn't think of the power that it would become. And to to be that band is you know it's pretty pretty amazing. Sky Cars Murray first internet concert in the world, and you you all around that time too. Um, you were touring with pretty big bands, right? You had played with Nine Inch Nails, Bjork. I know you're doing big festivals. You were you were kind of at the peak of pop culture, right? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's like Nine Inch Nails, Bjork, Green Day, and then we toured an entire summer with Neil Young. So diverse because our sound kind of fit in with each one in a way. And we'd kind of curtail the set list to fit with each band. By the late 90s, Roderick released a handful of albums, and he starts getting involved in making elaborate artistic tree houses for the rich and famous. His clients included Sting, actress Julianne Moore, Donna Karen of the fashion label DKNY, as well as for actor Val Kilmer. Roderick is now living in New York at the time, and he's just made Kilmer's Treehouse. And he gets a call to come to Kilmer's house because Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground, along with his wife, Lori Anderson, who's a composer, musician, and film director, are having dinner in his treehouse. So then we had dinner together for like two weeks. So it was me and Lou and Lori and Val. And uh, at the end of it, he's like, Roderick, you're going to call me, right? And I'm like... Sure, Lou. And sure, I thought Louis. he was joking because, you know, I thought it was like a summer romance. At the end of it, no one calls anyone. <laughs> and so and so, uh, so then he called me and he's like, why didn't you call me? And I'm like, oh, Lou, I thought you were kidding. Yeah, I'll come right over. <laughs> yeah, you can't tell Lou Reed. It's difficult to call you. You're Lou Reed. Like, I assume everyone's calling you. Yeah, so then we would have breakfast every Monday. That was our deal. Really? And so... Um, if he was in town and I was in town, uh-huh. it was always Mondays. Sunday morning the It's just a restless feeling by my side. So that really was incredible because we just talked really music theory and um and kind of the tech side, you know, he was really worried about what was happening through bands just creating music for the internet. And so he thought they're compressing their sound too much. Um, there's too much information going out. Like bands are just doing stuff without really knowing what they're doing. That was a big concern for him because he grew up with vinyl. And so, uh, we talked about that a lot. Um, 
and again, Theory and uh, other musicians and other artists, like, you know, he'd talk about Andy Warhol. He'd talk about his experience back in the factory and stuff a little, you know. And then after he passed, um, thankfully, uh, Lori stayed on with me and is, you know, she's one of my greatest friends. So we have breakfasts together now. Oh, that's nice. And probably yeah. talk back about Lou Reed. A little bit. What'd you learn from him? Integrity, I guess. You know, staying true to your heart and to music, um, not compromising. That was that was his whole thing. You know, just write what your heart tells you to write, and um, that was that was everything to me. It made sense to me. Roderick Wolgamott has gone on to release 14 records with Sky Cries Mary. He's currently working on a new album and will be back in the area next month. He'll be playing at Seattle's Hemp Fest August 18th and will be headlighting the Hoodstock Festival around the Hood Canal in Shelton, Washington on August 17th. This is Sound and Vision. Tacoma, Washington's Perry Porter is out with a new album. It's called Bobby Ross, a play on the PBS painter Bob Ross. The album fuses together Porter's love of both rap music and visual art. Visual art is something that's fairly new to Porter, and he recognizes the visual art world has been largely reserved for the white elite. Martin Douglas has this profile. 20 grand and rubber bands, place that in my other hand. On the afternoon of Juneteenth, I sat with one of Seattle's most hotly tipped rappers and painters, Perry Porter, in his art studio. Somewhere along what used to be the Alaskan Way Viaduct, his studio was adorned with the texture of watercolors. On canvas, on paper, bright florid colors painted as flowers on the walls. Porter's talent in both rap music and visual art has elevated to previously uncharted heights over the past year, leading to the magical realism of his paintings and Bobby Ross, the best album of his rising solo career so far. Porter has been rapping since high school, but he says it wasn't until 2012 when he was working on a solo project called Paper Moon that he started getting into visual art. And I just had this really big idea of doing this really like watery looking abstract painting. And then I didn't even know what like, watercolor was even then. And then I was just really big out looking at stuff on Tumblr, and I found this artist named Laura Zombie, and I just fell in love with her work. Zombie's usage of color and texture offers a dreamlike feel. Colorful birds and butterflies flutter around young women in black dresses who are suspended in zero gravity. Cats ride parachutes. Little girls with blue hair brandish baseball bats. Just something my brain was just like fixated with it for weeks. I just couldn't get like her art out of my brain, and it was just like. I just need to try it. Like, there's something about it. I just need to try it. So I just went on Amazon, bought like $200 worth of just watercolor stuff, stuff, and just never looked back from there. Porter says first encountering Zombie's work was the moment he started thinking about using art to inspire his music. But that's when everything started clicking more. Because uh, I started to feel like with a lot of my music, it didn't really have like an identify. I couldn't identify who I was as a person yet. And I feel like with that moment, I've always been an artist. I've always drawn. I always just did creative stuff. That was the first time like I felt 
like I took the title of being an artist and kind of ran with it. And then since then, rapping about art and being creative has always been a part of my music. At first, art was just a lyrical accoutrement when Porter adopted the Bobby Ross nickname that his newest album is titled after. But his paints would eventually seep into his music and become a guiding force. His shows started to become interactive experiences with members of the audience invited on stage to paint watercolors on a canvas when he performed. For his new album, he provided a color wheel, providing a color relating to his corresponding song and several diagrams of color schemes associated with the moods of the album's music. The concept was I wanted to create an album that audio-wise represented every color in the color wheel. For example, he describes the song Surf as a turquoise song. That's my favorite color, so I want that to be like the type of music I like. So Surf is the music I listen to all day. Surf. Then there's songs like um, Bust That, that's the yellow song, and it's the song that's about the girl. I said, baby, you look nice today. I mean, you always on my mind. It ain't the time when you ain't fun. I'm thinking, baby, you look you know, and it's really bright and it's supposed to remind people of being on a summer day. We can take a flight today, go find a place, yeah. We can leave, we ain't gotta stay, yeah. And then as I was just like listening to the album, thinking about some of that, I realized, oh shit, like there's twelve colors on the color wheel, I got twelve songs, like Oh, damn. While Porter's album, Bobby Ross, is most certainly a play on PBS's Serene Painter of Happy Trees. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees. Perry Porter is clear about the nickname being just that, not an intentional aspiration. He is steadfast about being an individual, the one and only Perry Porter. I've made the point, though, to not want it to be the black Bob Ross. I want to like take ownership of that. So, Because even though I don't have a problem with being Black Ross, I don't, I always have this weird thing of being like compared to the white superior shit all the time. The perspective of being a Black artist not only circulates in Porter's mind when he's painting, but it also comes up in his music, especially on the album. The notion of Black boy joy and the importance of representation in art are expressed on the song Birth of a Black Star. Black artistry naturally, almost obviously, courses throughout Porter's latest album, Bobby Ross. In Bobby Ross' opener, The Joy of Painting, you can hear Black visual artist Carrie Mae Weems chatting with filmmaker Terrence Nance about imbuing your personality into your work. Again, and that's why we come back to music, right? You know, that you have to dig for you. You have to dig to really discover not well, your, your blackness as such, but your as a bookend for the song Nothing New, there's an audio snippet of painter Jean-Michel Basquiat. He observes the complications of being a brilliant, once-in-a-lifetime talent in the gallery while being just another black man in the streets. To go for a place where you're in a gallery or you're at parties or you're in a place where everyone knows who the hell you are and is looking at you or hoping to do drugs with you or hoping to get laid by you. And to go back out in the world and to be just this black guy walking around looking kind of bummy to most people's eyes, that also was a mind. 
In the song Shark Fin, you hear poet Maya Angelou recalling a pivotal conversation with Tupac Shakur. And finally, I said, when, when was the last time anyone told you how important you are? Did you know our people stood on auction blocks? They're sold, bought and sold. Did you know so that you could stay alive today? And finally, he heard me and stopped talking and started to weep. Perry notes the difficulty of being a black man in the art world, a scene he feels white elites have had a strong hold on since its inception. Somewhere in society, they've gotten this really weird hold on the art world. There's this really, really weird mystique hold on the art world. And like, white America has more control over the art world, I would say, that once... Well, I've said this with anything. I feel like once a black person or a person of color has a white fan base, you are accepted. Perry finds himself navigating the social hierarchy of the art world as a visual artist and rapper. I'd get so much more artistic or even intellectual respect when I say I'm a painter first. Then when I mention I'm a rapper, from first part, I've never really got respect for being a rapper. I don't look like a rapper, so I've never get respect like a rapper because I look more like a painter or because painters have more of like the intellectual thing to them. People give me far more respect, far more freedom. They're willing to pick my brain a lot more. Either way, Perry says fusing art and music has made him come into singularity more than any project before it. I feel like I'm coming into just my own and no one can't do Perry better than Perry. I'm not focused on trying to be anybody else. I don't feel like my music sounds like anybody. Perry says he's taken a new sense of ownership over his identity as a rapper and a painter, and others are starting to take notice. My friend did tell me the other day, like, we were having a conversation, and uh, he was kind of just, because he gets on me a lot about taking more ownership of who I am, because he's actually said a lot, too. He's like, you don't realize the position you are being the rapper, painter, what you do. Porter emphasizes his awareness of history is so often whitewashed due to a deliberate lack of inclusion of people of color. He sees very few faces of color in the upper echelons of the art world. History is so often tied to the art of people living while history is happening that it's easy for the sort of people who frequent museums to ignore the personhood of those not represented there. On the other side of the duality his artistry represents, people invested in the rap world are excited by Porter's involvement in visual art. But I will say, though, rappers love the fact that I'm a painter. That has been my favorite part, seeing how much the rap world loves that I'm a painter. As Perry Porter navigates these very different creative worlds, he manages to explore both with the singularity, a lot of personality, a constantly evolving sense of who he is both personally and culturally. For Sound of Vision, I'm Martin Douglas. My self-love shouldn't bother others. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. We transparent like these watercolors. My self-love shouldn't bother others. Yeah, transparent like these watercolors. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. This week's listener question features kids. Because on Friday, KEXP morning DJ John Richards hosted a bunch of kids and their parents in the DJ booth. The kids made requests, jumped on the mic to say, this is KEXP. It was so adorable. And we took the opportunity to ask the kids and their parents, what's a song that they both love and why? And we got all kinds of answers. My name is Ben. I like Daft Punk. It has a lot of robot sound. I 
Um, my name is Mayan. And my name is Armando Paz. Where is my mind by the Pixies? It's a really great song, and we love it. Yeah. When the Pixies comes on and Where Is My Mind, yeah, we usually kind of jam out to that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what are your what are your memories of that? I remember my brother running around and dancing to the song. Maceo, yeah. yeah. And he's uh Maceo's four, and so he runs around screaming, Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Which is a great memory. I like like the I like all of it, but specifically I like the um how they're like it's pretty energetic, but they're asking, Where is my mind? Hi, my name is Oscar. Me and my dad like to listen to Go by the Black Keys. We like to race when we hear the song with our, with our race cars. It's a Hot Wheels car that I bought it. Hi, my name is Greta. Hi, my name is Thorson. Hi, my name is Freya. My favorite song is High Hopes. I don't play it at home because Dad dances to it at home. And I don't like listening to it anywhere but the car because then he dances and that's... I don't like listening to dance songs with him because he dances. I just don't let you listen to dance songs because then you dance and that's embarrassing. I like it when he does. (laughs) Yeah. And then it embarrasses Freya. I don't even like it either. I like it when he does it. They don't. I do. Because <laughs> he never dances in front of your friends. Like, do you remember the birthday party? I had a dance party. I know, but he dances in front of my friends. That was in front of my thing. Yeah, but he dances in front of my friends. Oh, I just love that last answer. It's so good. Thanks to everyone who shared a story on this podcast today. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to me, and it helps other people discover this podcast. And if you really love this podcast, KEXP would love to see a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. Before we wrap up this podcast today, we have to ask the question, why music matters? If you're not familiar with KEXP, our tagline is, where the music matters. So to break down why it matters is Megan Jasper. She's the CEO of Sub Pop Records in Seattle. I think music matters because it allows for us to explore emotions and feelings that we have and it provides the safe way for us to explore those feelings and in that exploration I think it connects us it makes us understand each other better and it makes us understand ourselves better and we always need more of that that was Sound and Vision thanks for listening